Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 018, book four of Homer's Iliad. We're getting back to the Iliad now today. So to recap, what we've talked about in books one, two, and three is in book one, we were introduced to the conflict between Achilles and Agamemnon, what precipitated it, and what uh, the fallout from it was. In book two, we saw Agamemnon, his leadership strategies, um, him being fooled by uh, an evil dream and not having yet the confidence of Nestor. Um, and we also had the catalog of ships. And then in book three, we had the the one-on-one combat set up between Menelaus and Paris, the Taiko Scopia, and then we saw the fallout of that combat and the relationship between Aphrodite, Helen, and Helen and Paris, and, well, things did not look so good. So in book four here, we can separate the book into four different parts. The initial part is the drama on Olympus, the drama in heaven, as it were. The second part will be the deceiving of the foolish Pandaros by Athena, the spoiler. The third part will be the drama which unfolds after Menelaus is struck by Arrow and Agamemnon's antics following that. The fourth part will be Agamemnon ordering his troops and going about and encouraging and um, getting on the case of his champions. Um, So some will be receiving some positive reinforcements, some will be receiving some negative feedback um, from him. Some will respond back with some bitterness, um, particularly Stenilus, Diomedes' henchman, and and some will take it, particularly Diomedes, and, uh, well, Odysseus will also be spoken to by Agamemnon, and he'll have something to say, and we'll have something to say about that, too. And the fourth part is the actual battling, which will occur between the Trojans and the Achaeans, which will end with uh, a very poetic, beautiful final line of Book 4. Okay, well, let's get started. Now the gods, at the side of Zeus, were sitting in council over the golden floor, and among them the goddess Hebe poured them nectar as wine, while they, in the golden drinking cups, drank to each other, gazing down on the city of the Trojans. Presently, the son of Cronos was minded to anger Hera, if he could, with words offensive, speaking to cross her. Two among the goddesses stand by Menelaus, Hera of Argos, and Athena, who stands by her people. Yet see, here they are sitting apart, looking on at the fighting, and take their pleasure. Meanwhile, laughing Aphrodite forever stands by her man and drives the spirits of death away from him. Even now she has rescued him when he thought he would perish. So the victory now is with warlike Menelaus. Let us consider then how these things shall be accomplished, whether again to stir up grim warfare and the terrible fighting, or cast down love and make them friends with each other. If somehow this way could be sweet and pleasing to all of us, the city of Lord Priam might still be a place men dwell in, and Menelaus could take away with him Helen of Argos. Lines 1 to 19 in Book 4 of Richmond Lattimore's translation of the Iliad. And so in the aftermath of the confusion, following Paris and Menelaus' one-on-one combat, uh, the confusion that came because Aphrodite 
whisked Paris away before the conclusion of the combat, which looked as if Menelaus was going to clearly win. Well, nobody knows what to do, and Agamemnon has tried to declare Menelaus the winner, but without a clear, without a dead body there, it is slightly unclear what to do. And in, in fact, this situation will be um, abstracted out in the story of the Odyssey, where um, nobody back in Ithaca knows exactly what to do, thinking Odysseus dead, and but yet not quite knowing. Um, and so it's a representation of limbic chaos, one might say, uh, being in a limbo between possible presents that are predicated on possible present circumstances which you can't understand, where, or rather which you can't yet determine based on information you don't have. Sort of a Schrodinger's cat situation, I would say. And so nobody knows what's happening, so nobody knows what to do. So the decision will come from heaven, Olympus. And Zeus, though it should be noted that he speaks explicitly in order to anger Hera, and we should be particularly careful to note in this moment that Hera does represent nature and Zeus represents culture, or rather we should keep that hypothesis in mind to frame how we read this interaction. Because why does Zeus speak to anger, anger Hera? Well, he is going to produce to her options he knows that she is not going to accept. And so what are the options he suggests to her? He says, well, well, first and foremost, he, he throws the barb in order to insult her. He says, oh, wow, you know, I didn't understand the rules of combat. Uh, but what seems what seem to have been the rules are that Aphrodite goes to help her man, and yet, even though there are two of you, Hera and you, Athena, neither of you help yours. And so, well, for one, Zeus there proves that Paris is a, a liar and a fool, from the end of book three, because he claims that Menelaus only won because of the help of Athena, and Athena was sitting next to Hera the whole time, not helping Menelaus, of course, and nor should would she need to for Menelaus easily to dispatch Paris, as we all saw. But Zeus says that explicitly in order to anger Hera and Athena, and in fact Athena looks at him sullenly but keeps her anger to herself because she's a good daughter to Zeus, uh, but Hera... No, she speaks her mind. And so what she says to Zeus is, Majesty, son of Kronos, what sort of thing have you spoken? How can you wish to make wasted and fruitless all this endeavor? The sweat that I have sweated in toil and my horses worn out, gathering my people and bringing evil to Priam and his children. Do it then, but not all the rest of us gods will approve you. Lines 25 to 29. And so what you see there is that Hera, of course, wants the war to continue on. And she wants her efforts to be rewarded, just as Odysseus said to the men in Book 2 in order to reorient them, that they ought to think to the plunder that they're going to acquire after years of working and that they ought to finish what they start. And so Hera also says that Zeus can do what he wants because culture can do what it wants, art, intelligence. However, nature will not abide by it, which shows, and, and Zeus will then seek agreement, which suggests that the major action on Olympus is always to seek, or the best action that can be sought on Olympus 
is to seek agreement between Hera and Zeus, between nature and culture. And in fact, the agreement here will be rather gruesome. Uh, Zeus responds, Dear lady, what can be all the great evils done to you by Priam and the sons of Priam that you are thus furious forever to bring down the strong-founded city of Ilion? If you could walk through the gates, through the towering ramparts, and eat Priam and the children of Priam raw and the other Trojans, then, then only might you glut at last your anger. Do as you please then. Never let this quarrel hereafter be between you and me a bitterness for both of us. And put away in your thoughts this other thing that I tell you. Whenever I, in turn, am eager to lay waste some city as I please, one in which are dwelling men who are dear to you, you shall not stand in the way of my anger, but let me do it, since I was willing to grant you this with my heart unwilling. For of all the cities beneath the sun and the starry heaven dwelt in by men who live upon earth, there has never been one honored nearer to my heart than sacred Ilion and Priam and the people of Priam and the strong ash spear. Never yet has my altar gone without fair sacrifice, the libation and the savor since this is our portion of honor. And Hera responds, Of all cities, there are three that are dearest to my own heart, Argos and Sparta and Mycenae, Mycenae of the wide ways. All these, whenever they become hateful to your heart, sack utterly. I will not stand up for these against you, nor yet begrudge you. Even so I bear malice, and would not have you destroy them in malice. Or, excuse me, yet if even so I bear malice, and would not have you destroy them in malice, I will accomplish nothing, since you are far stronger. Yet my labor also should not be let go unaccomplished. I am likewise a god, and my race is even what yours is, and I am the first of the daughters of devious devising Cronus. Both ways, since I am eldest born, and I am called your consort, yours, and you in turn are lord over all the immortals. Come then, in this thing let us both give way to each other, I to you, you to me, and so the rest of the immortal gods will follow. Now in speed give orders to Athena to visit horrible war again on Achaeans and Trojans, and try to make it so that the Trojans are first offenders to do injury against the oaths to the far-famed Achaeans. And so what is it that the king of the gods, the representation of culture and the hierarchy of culture and nature or Hera, the queen of the gods, discuss? Well, they discuss the destruction of man and of cities. Why would they do that? Well, culture is that which is always degenerating and corrupting and then coming back to be in a sort of phoenix-like fashion. And so it destroys itself and we, have, we will see this... Uh, We'll see this throughout every great book that we we discuss. In particular, we'll see this happen to Troy here, which is a funny meta-reference. But also we see that nature is all, or Hera is all too willing to give up three of her favorite cities, Argos, owned in part by Agamemnon and in part by Diomedes, 
Mycenae, known as Mycenae these days, or Mycenae, depending on where you're from and who you learned your Greek from. And that's, um, that's what Agamemnon is fully king over. And also Sparta, Lacedaemon, which is where Menelaus is king. In fact, later when we read the Aeneid together, those three places, including Phthia, where Achilleus is prince of, his father Peleus is king of currently, though old and enfeebled, all those places will be said to be destroyed by Rome, by the descendants of the Trojans. And, Achille and Aeneas will hear this from his father in Book Six, when he visits the Elysian Fields, Elysium, within the Roman, the Romanized hey, underworld of Pluto. Pluto. And so, why is it exactly that Hera? offers three cities to the one of Zeus. Well, for one, Zeus says that this this particular city, this Troy, is, is his favorite city and always gives him sacrifices and never is unholy. And so he has absolutely no reason to hate them, and, which is interesting because it suggests to you that exactly what Zeus protects. He protects custom and ritual and value. And so if you break custom, in particular the guest-host relationship, the zinnia or hospitality, or if you break ritual in terms of not sacrificing appropriately, that is what Zeus protects, and so that is how you earn the anger of Zeus, or any god in, in that particular way. Um, if you fail to sacrifice them in their particular province, you will, you will not be successful. So, for example, if you didn't sacrifice to Apollo before a sporting event, I would suggest that you did not practice before that sporting event. So to sacrifice, say, an animal to Apollo would just be a lower-level abstraction of practicing and training hard for your event in order to perform in it, which is what, say, a modern athlete would do as his sacrifice to Apollo. And so why is it that Hera heartlessly offers three of her cities for one of Zeus's? So, yes, Yes, Zeus obviously loves this city, and he has no reason to hate it. And the reasons that he does hate cities is when they break hospitality or some rule of custom of order, because he represents the order of all things which are civilized. And, and he says that there is no city dearer to his heart. And so the city has never been a problem to him, and there's no city dearer to his heart, and they always make great sacrifices of honor. They do everything right. Well, Hera says she wants them destroyed, and she's going to give away three cities. Why? Well, she represents nature, and what does nature constantly do with all things made by man? She destroys it over time through entropy, no matter what it is, no matter over what course of time. And so... Why does she want Troy destroyed in the height of its youth? Well, for the same reason, for the same reason, we will see, so Troy is at the height of its power, as beautiful as it will ever be. We will see also young men, even in this book four, die by the spear, who are the same, like a, a black poplar come to its full bloom, and then being cut. And so, what is this showing? It's showing the savage aspect, the negative image of mother nature to cause conflict between peoples in order to bring about 
savage and tragic death to things beautifully wrought by education and art. And so why does she offer three cities to Zeus's one? Because she would have destroyed those cities herself at some point anyway, as she will destroy all things in her sort of Kali aspect of the devouring mother. And so it's as if she's offering nothing. And so Zeus summons Athena to him. And this supports the point made in an earlier lecture that Athena implements the will of Zeus on the battlefield. Even though she'll often work in conjunction with Hera, one might consider this Hera having the active motive force of Zeus with her when Athena implements her plan, showing some sort of tacit agreement from Zeus with what Hera is doing. And in fact, when Hera will directly disobey Zeus, that will be when Poseidon actually enters the battlefield against the will of Zeus. And uh, Athena will have little or nothing to do with that. So Athena is called, and she's told to go down to the battlefield and stir up the war again, and to make it look as if the Trojans started it. And so this is interesting, because the goddess of wisdom is being sent down in order to deceive, in order to trick. And in fact, she'll come to a young, delusional uh, man named Pandaros. Pandaros, who is a Lycaean archer, a talented archer with a very nice bow, which receives quite the ornate description indicating uh, just how elaborately wrought it is and potentially how elaborately wrought and how much effort is put into Pandaros, or at least into the superficial aspects of him because his dreams of glory are what Athena uses against him in the guise of Antenor's son, Laodicus, and recall that Antenor is the advisor to Priam and thus a symbol of wisdom, and so his son would also be wise. And so Athena here represents in the form of Laodicus the image of wisdom, some, the superficial idea of wisdom, that which appears wise. And so what does this indicate about Athena? That it is one's relationship to her that defines one's or defines her effect on one. So it is because Odysseus has a good relationship to Athena that she rewards him with success. Pandaros having a superficial relationship with her does not even recognize her for what she actually is. So whereas Odysseus receives a treat, well, Pandaros receives a trick. Because wisdom is seizing upon the opportunity that you see in the moment, carpe diem style. And so wisdom is that which can always be seen by one with bright or alert eyes, which is why Athena is always mentioned as gray-eyed, one who sees things for how they are, gray also emotionless, so one who sees without emotional valence, one who sees clearly. Therefore, so to see clearly is wisdom here, to be alert. And that is precisely what Pandaros is not, because his pride gets to him and he has his fool's 
heart, persuaded. He notches his arrow, turns it into a circle. It streaks off his bow in a, in a, a tour de force of beautiful poetry and excellent translation by Lattimore in conjunction with Homer's lucid voice. And the, the arrow screams between the two pieces of the corslet in the war belt of Menelaus and strikes him, but only with the tip. Only the tip-top tip of the arrow hits him. So, so blood then immediately spreads down his thighs and then his calves and then his feet. And he's, he's compared to when women stain a new sheet with dye, how it just spreads across the sheet. And that's all. It's as if all at once everything has changed. Not only the psychological, emotional situation going from a, a weird, chaotic truce to all of a sudden the horror of battle having started again without anybody knowing it, but also the view was of Menelaus, fine, healthy, strong, champion. And now Menelaus, covered in blood, looking as if he could have just been struck down. It's day to night in an instant. And a theme that's going to come up again and again in the Iliad is that when a lesser man strikes a greater man, or rather some relative nobody who we have not heard of strikes a champion on the Achaean side, he will come to a quick demise. And so we'll see that happen over and over again. Uh, particularly, though, look for Pandaros. He will be an early example in Book 5, and we'll draw attention to that because he's going to run afoul of Diomedes and... Well, Diomedes is going to have quite the good day. Quite the good day that the scholars will call an Aristea in Book 5. And so Menelaus is stricken by the arrow, and Agamemnon comes over to him. And as I mentioned in an earlier lecture, he shows some tender tenderness of heart. Dear brother, it was your death I sealed in the oaths of friendship, setting you alone before the Achaeans to fight with the Trojans. So the Trojans have struck you down and trampled on the oaths sworn. Still the oaths and the blood of the lamb shall not be called vain. The unmixed wine poured in the right hands we trusted. If the Olympian at once has not finished this matter, late will he bring it to pass. And they must pay a great penalty with their own heads and with their women and with their children. For I know this thing well in my heart. And my mind knows it. There will come a day when sacred Ilion shall perish, and Priam and the people of Priam of the strong ash spear, and Zeus, son of Kronos, who sits on high, the sky dwelling himself, shall take, shall shake the gloom of his aegis over all of them in anger for this deception. And let me pause right there just to mention that it is precisely because the oath of trust between Agamemnon and Priam has been upset by this break of truce by an act of violence against Menelaus that Agamemnon is assured by his value system, by his belief system, that Zeus will destroy the Trojans because what have they broken? A social custom, an agreement made between kings and therefore a holy agreement and therefore defended by Zeus and therefore of the highest possible offense, and therefore befitting of the highest possible punishment. 
And so Agamemnon speaks in righteous indignation at what has been done and will be filled with that as he moves amongst his troops to, to spark passion into them. Because you might be saying, you might say of him that he leads from the top in that instance because he becomes exactly what it is that a motivating king should be. But let's also note that he shows care for his brother, but I'm going to continue reading the quote and you'll see, I think, what the real linchpin is, which will also be a theme that moves throughout this chapter, which is what happens at Troy, whether the Achaeans win or lose, will determine Agamemnon's reputation for all time, his kleos, his glory, his teammate, his honor, which are physically embodied at a low level of abstraction by the treasures he has, but are already starting to be abstracted up and the stories that will be said of him. People are learning that stories are what immortalize you, and that's what it means to be thrown into the stars, because what are stars? They're lights that illuminate the dark sky that we all stare at. And what does that mean? That a star is that which guides us. And what does that mean? Well, if you think of throwing a constellation into the stars, that means your image or your form of remarkable deed gets maintained in the mind of man as a guide to all men who come after you because of how incredible a thing you did was. And so Agamemnon could potentially be one of those sorts of men, like Orion, like the brothers of Helen, Castor and Pollux, if he wins at Troy. But if Menelaus dies, or if the men run away or commit mutiny against him, or Achilles doesn't come back and he can't win and he somehow loses, well, the men for all time will say that he's the biggest loser possible because he had ten times more men than the Trojans and also Achilles and Odysseus and the best fighting force ever behind him. And so it was a situation that only a fool could lose, and that fool would be called Agamemnon for all time were he not to win at Troy. And he'll show that he is deeply, deeply worried about this. And even Diomedes, when he speaks to him, even insultingly, will indicate that he knows this as well. And so I continue. But I shall suffer a terrible grief for you, Menelaus, if you die and fill out the destiny of your lifetime. And I must return a thing of reproach to Argus the Thirsty, for now at once the Achaeans will remember the land of their fathers, and thus we would leave to Priam and to the Trojans, Helen of Argos, to glory over, while the bones of you rot in the plowland as you lie dead in Troy on a venture that went unaccomplished. And thus shall some Trojan speak in the proud show of his manhood, leaping lightly as he speaks on the tomb of great Menelaus. Might Agamemnon accomplish his anger thus against all his enemies, as now he led here in vain a host of Achaeans, and has gone home again to the beloved land of his fathers, with ships empty and leaving behind him brave Menelaus. Thus shall a man speak, then let the wide earth open to take me. So, Agamemnon is very much worried about what people will say about him if Menelaus is here going to die. They'll say of him, while dancing on Menelaus's grave, that Agamemnon came here and let his brother die and failed to get Helen back. And 
acted completely in vain, and Agamemnon is terrified of this possibility. And so his brother speaks up immediately and says, No, no, brother, it's just a flesh wound, and it, it's just barely hurt me. And Agamemnon says, Oh my gosh, may it, may it only be as you say, O Menelaus, and summons a physician. And this physician is named Machaon, and he and his brother are the two individuals, they're the two healers who are here with the Achaean troops. Um, though we will find out later that both Patroclus and that both Patroclus and Achilleus are talented healers as well. But so Machaon here, who will later himself be injured, um, is described as a son of Asclepius, as as a man godlike. Um, and it, it's even mentioned that Chiron, uh, the centaur, who by some accounts was the teacher of Achilleus, though in the Iliad, Phoenix will be the teacher of Achilleus, that Chiron had taught Asclepius, the father of Machaon, the arts of healing. But all that goes to show is that he is essentially 100% identified with his role as healer in being son of Asclepius, who's god of healing, uh, son of Apollo, and also in being uh, godlike in his abilities, this means he has maximum competency. It means that when Machaon is summoned, he's essentially like a, a healer from a video game, like an RPG. It's just an, it's a constant, it's a guarantee. He's going to get the job done. And so Machaon takes the barbed arrow out, heals up the wound nicely. Menelaus is going to be good to go. And so this, that's a pretty good place for us to stop this time around. We'll split this uh, lecture into two. We'll do the second part of book four next time. I'll get that out very soon. We'll see Agamemnon rally his troops. We'll see then also some of his troops get to fight, and we'll see a little bit of prosaic beauty at the end of book four when Homer discusses just how many men have died in this day of confusion and battle that resulted from, well, what should have been an excellent plan one-on-one -on -one combat between Menelaus and Paris, which should have resulted only in one very, very just death. Well, the situation spirals out of control, and it ends up with neither Menelaus nor Paris dead. Paris not even on the battlefield, and with many good and potentially better men dying in their stead. So, this has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, uh, Homer's Book 4, Iliad Part 1. We covered... The drama in heaven, we covered the fooling of Pandaros and the shooting of his arrow, and the healing of uh, Menelaus after Agamemnon reveals his deep, deep terror at what men may say of him someday, if ever he should fail to take Troy. And so please share, please listen in, please call in, and please keep, well, just keep on going. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.